Last night was an A1 tip-top clubbing jam fair. It was a sandwich of fun on ecstasy bread, wrapped up in a big bag like disco fudge. It doesn't get much better than that. I just wish sometimes I could control these fucking mood swings. Dad does... Dad does... Drugs. Drugs. Dad does drugs. Hello and welcome to the 11th instalment of this series aimed at reducing the harm our kids can do to themselves with drugs, legal and otherwise. Not by telling them to just say no and then leaving them to get on with it, but by giving them honest, open, evidence and experience-based knowledge. I wrote that down so it would roll off the tongue nicely. Uh, This week I've spoken to a couple of BBC local radio stations, Leeds and Manchester, about the podcast, which was great. Thank you very much, John Foster and Daryl Morris, who were good interviewers and asked questions which made me think a little bit on my feet, and I think it was good. I've also had a nice email from Christine. Uh, She says... I've listened to your podcasts and found them to be so potentially helpful that I would like to link to them from our website. It's a charity, Parent Support Link, set up 25 years ago to offer support and information to people being affected by someone else's drug and alcohol use. This is usually a family member or members, but we can reach much wider. We've come a long way from a telephone in the corner of a bedroom and now we provide 24-7 telephone contact line operated by humans at all times, the opportunity to engage with a family support worker, providing one-to-one support sessions, attending a regular support group, participate in health and wellbeing sessions and lots more. We used to be very involved with primary prevention and working in schools, but unfortunately this avenue of awareness raising has been badly affected by cuts to funding, amongst other things. This is one of the reasons that I welcome your podcasts. They are great and deliver what can be a difficult subject in a friendly way. Well done you. If there was more of this kind of openness, maybe the number of families that need our help would decrease rather than increase, as is the case. Well, I'm sorry to hear that that is increasing. That is worrying, isn't it? But thank you very much. I'm really proud that you want to have links to the podcast on your website, which is parentsupportlink.com. .org.uk. By all means, put links to the podcast there. I hope lots of people listen to it. I hope they do find it helpful. Um, Thanks ever so much for your kind words. Today, we're talking about MDMA, the drug in ecstasy, with a great American guest, a guy called Emmanuel Sferios, founder of Dance Safe in the US, which is a harm reduction charity promoting health and safety within the electronic music community. EDM, as they call it in the States. He's very positive about the benefits of ecstasy, so much so that he's making a film called MDMA the Movie. Everything starts with an E. When I was in the war, I almost lived constantly in a state of fear. I couldn't easily name a single day that I was in Iraq that I didn't get shot at, that I didn't have something explode next to me. There was a situation where there were two little girls that got killed by me and the individuals that I was serving with. They were six and seven years old. There was a lot of things that we did in Iraq that are hard to live with.
I took the MDMA early in the morning on the first session. Then I just started thinking about things. It was uh, it's like a floodgate of thoughts just opened and all of a sudden I was processing things and thinking about things in perspectives that I hadn't considered before. At the end of the first session, it had really struck home with me that I didn't have compassion for myself anymore. I viewed myself almost as a monster. So I, um, I worked with that and I was able to connect with a place that I really appreciated myself again and I felt nothing but compassion for myself. And it was at that point that I think the healing really began. What we've learned is that MDMA reduces activity in the amygdala where fear-based emotions are processed. So when we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, people are burdened by things that happened in the past. And so under the influence of MDMA, the fear tags to emotions are reduced. The feelings and the memories come back from the trauma and then they're able to build new neural pathways to these memories without the fear attached to it. So one MDMA session can fundamentally reorder and rewire people's brains. So I'll put some links to Emmanuel's film page, his podcast, which is called Drug Positive Podcast, and to the charity he founded, Dance Safe, in the notes for this episode. I found it fascinating to talk to him about ecstasy, MDMA. I think it's the drug that interests me the most. My experiences with it personally have been positive, yet it gets the biggest headlines in this country in the press when it's responsible for the deaths of very young people. Increasingly, as young as 13 and 15 have died in the last few weeks in the UK, which is just so tragic. So how could those deaths have been prevented? How could the number of deaths in the UK be reduced? Is it more info about the strength of MDMA? Uh, how to dose correctly, maybe keeping cool, hydrated properly when you use it. Just knowing what it is that you're taking and what not to mix it with. And, you know, it doesn't work very well if you're on antidepressants and it could be dangerous. It doesn't work well if you've had a big meal. It doesn't work well if you're already drunk. All of this sort of stuff is practical advice. It just terrifies me that a 13-year-old is taking it just in a park for something to do for the day. Maybe even legal regulation is the end point of all this, but I don't know, is that just too risky? Let's ponder the answer to some of those things while we have a listen to Emmanuel Sverios, and then I'll talk to my teenage son, Credence, and find out what he thinks. How are you today? I'm good, thank you, yeah. Um, how's morning in New Mexico? Uh, cold. <laughs> it's uh, much colder than California. But I have a nice little space heater here, and uh, I'm doing all right. Well, the reason I wanted to talk to you, I'm, I'm making a podcast as well, and I'm currently recording lots of the, uh, the, the interviews, and I want to mm -hmm. do it to sort of talk to parents and maybe young people, if they choose to listen to a podcast as well, to sort of myth-bust a, a bit around uh, drugs and to get parents like me talking honestly to our kids instead of just saying just say no which is what uh, 
was the message when I was younger. And right. uh, being a bit more uh, understanding of the fact that that's not really enough. You know, be, be honest. And, and whether that sometimes might mean being honest about the fact that you as a parent have done some recreational drug taking in your past and it hasn't harmed you and and uh, but, but also or even currently or even or even currently yes yeah exactly right? and um you be, being honest about it and because uh, i've just been struck by uh, through a bit of reading and a bit of listening to other people's podcasts and all the wisdom there how much knowledge there is that most young people just don't have and so you might save a bunch of lives and certainly save a bit of heartache, some bad trips, some unpleasant nights out and brushes with the law or what have you, if you just yep. knew a little bit of information. Right. Great. Thank you for doing it. I think it's so necessary and I uh, uh, really appreciate uh, folks like yourself willing to, you know, speak publicly and honestly. Too few people are doing it. So well, that's great. You- You've been doing it for quite a while, and, and I, I've sort of heard about you through other people's podcasts, one called Drug Classroom. I listened to a, a, and took copious notes on a, on a long uh, podcast episode uh, with an interview of you, and then I've listened to episodes of your own Drug Positive podcast. And uh, having read a little bit more about you, I find you, you are Mr. MDMA. You are the person that loves uh, ecstasy. So I'd like to talk to you about yeah. that particular drug uh, today. Uh, You're making a movie about it. You've um, yeah. set up all sorts of uh, organizations to kind of keep people safe while they use it. So we'll, we'll talk about all of that. Um, and sure. I thought it's um, particularly for parents in the UK, I think you know, cannabis is the most used illegal drug, but not many people uh I think panic that their child might overdose on cannabis and die. Whereas I think in this country, in the UK, our culture around ecstasy use is you go to a rave or a festival when you're young and you might pop a pill or take some uh, molly from a bag that your mate's given you. And sadly, each year there are some deaths and the way it's reported in the UK is always a big deal. It makes front page of national newspapers often. So uh, I think people, parents will probably, that would be their worst nightmare, obviously, uh, a child in an accident like that. And and so people think it's deadly, but I know that you uh, have a lot more of a a balanced and knowledgeable viewpoint and don't think it's as harmful as probably a lot of parents think it is. Uh, Well, uh, that's certainly true. It, it, It is not as dangerous as the UK media has been reporting, but that doesn't mean it's without risk. There are risks. The difficulty is in assessing, determining what those risks actually are. And like I've been saying for 20 years and battling the media for 20 years is that, uh, in the vast majority of these cases, they're not overdoses. They're heat stroke because in a hot environment, dancing aerobically, uh, MDMA can increase the risk of heat stroke. And I say that carefully, even a normal dose can kill you if you are not careful about your body temperature. And so most of these fatalities are not uh, occurring because the person took too much. It's not a strict overdose like, a, say, an opiate death where you take too much of an opiate and it represses your breathing and you, you, and you die. 
Um, I should qualify, even most opiate deaths are not overdoses too. Even that's a misnomer. They're a result of combining opiates with other CNS depressants, et cetera. Um, so we need to be really careful in our language. Calling them overdoses gives the impression that the person took too much and therefore it was their own fault, something like that. So, uh, you know, other than getting PMA, uh, paramethoxyamphetamine, or another dangerous counterfeit drug in your ecstasy or molly, um, the greatest danger is in overheating. And typically what happens is you in these raves or festivals, summer festivals or indoor clubs where the temperature gets very hot. Uh, do you use Fahrenheit or Celsius in England? <laughs> I'm forgetting. We, we continue to confuse everyone by using both. So you up to you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, you know, it can be, it can start approaching 100 degrees Fahrenheit in some of these clubs and uh, and certainly in many uh, cities in the U.S. in the summertime, uh, out, it can be that hot outdoors. And everyone who's gone dancing at some point uh, in a hot nightclub has experienced getting too hot, right? Yeah. When your body temperature gets to be 100, certainly 101, you feel it. You're dizzy. You're like over. You can tell. Uh, I, you know, was mowing the lawn one time and started developing heat stroke and realized, oh, my God, I have to go back inside in the air conditioning right away. You know it. And you take a break from dancing. You get some water. You uh, chill out on a couch. Uh, hopefully they have a chill room where the temperature is uh, lower. And, 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 and you take care of yourself. The problem is that when you're on a drug like MDMA, you're and and you could, you could be feeling this great euphoria, and you don't notice that you're overheating. You your body temperature because you're feeling so good, so you keep on dancing aerobically. Now your body temperature gets up to 104, 105. By that point, you're in a state we call hyperthermia, a dangerously elevated body temperature. And people will collapse on the dance floor at that point, start having seizures, and you need to get the person immediately to an ice bath. And literally, the uh, clubs and festivals that have uh, knowledgeable medical teams, they have them ready. They have baths filled with ice, and you put the you got to get their body temperature down immediately. And in 99% of the cases, uh, these people survive. They survive without uh, brain damage or anything else. But sadly, a certain percentage of people um, have died. That's the vast majority of cases. That's what's going on. And so the good news about this is that through education and regulating the industries and ending prohibition, which prevents open, honest conversation and services and integrated harm reduction policies, <laughs> um, we could prevent the vast majority of these fatalities. That's the good news. Yeah. Yeah. It still sounds terrifying. I'm sure if you're a parent now listening to that, you're not feeling any better about the idea of your son or daughter going off to a festival and taking it. But I suppose um, <laughs> the 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 figures that um, you know in the last couple of years in the UK, they reckon that around 492,000 uh, people between 16 and 59 said that they'd used ecstasy uh, in in that year 2016 to 2017 I think and uh, in that year there were 63 deaths so um, that I mean when when a death happens it's a horrible 
tragedy. It's awful. Uh, but as a proportion of the number of people who are using that drug, uh, and I'm one of them, I've used I've used it in an irresponsible, hot nightclub sort of way where I didn't really know much about it. Uh, and I've I've got away with it, I suppose, or or it's just not that risky. I mean, people take risks all the time, don't they? I, I think I've read another stat. Again, these are sort of UK figures, but in in the UK, um, more people die on cycling on the roads in in that year. Right. One hundred and two people died riding their bikes in that year when sixty three yeah. died taking ecstasy. And I I cycle my bike a lot. I, I cycle to and from work every day on busy roads. Uh, right. So we take risks. Um, but but uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the the risk we're taking is because this drug is deadly. That's correct. There are actually many recreational activities statistically that are far more dangerous than taking MDMA or ecstasy, even with the uh, plethora of counterfeit pills and adulterated pills out there. It's still uh, far safer than, say, hang gliding, which is the most dangerous recreational activity, or rock climbing, where people die every year in the United States. But we don't ban safety equipment for rock climbing. No. Uh, we take a harm reduction approach. We say, okay, if you're going to do this, you need to be very careful. Here's what you need to know. And I think if it wasn't for the hysteria and moralism around drugs, the anti-pleasure, I guess, sort of Protestant ethic, uh, we would be doing the same thing, like they are in many other countries now uh, that have uh, far more integrated government-supported harm reduction services than exist in the US or the UK. Can I just, I suppose, wind back a little bit and, and let people know a bit? So who who are you and um, and what you do and what have you done i suppose in in this world sure. of, of of drugs and um and and so how has that informed your your opinion and all this knowledge on an mdma yeah all right well so i'm emmanuel spherios and i founded dance safe in 1999 dance safe is a united states uh, actually it's international we have some chapters in other countries a harm reduction organization it's the oldest um and largest harm reduction organization in the United States serving the rave or festival nightclub community, uh, mostly uh, party drug users, psychedelics and stimulants. Um, uh, also, I, my claim to fame is I was the first person outside of the Dutch government to provide public ecstasy pill testing. I started doing that uh, here in the United States in 1999. I did not get permission from the federal government to do it, although I did network and uh, with local public health department and local police. We and in many cities that uh, we we grew very quickly uh, in the United States. Within a year, we had 24 chapters throughout the U.S. and Canada, and in most of those chapters, we did pill testing and worked out amnesty agreements with the local police not to arrest users approaching the, the booth because I think uh, you know most people recognize that the drug war is a failure, uh, that uh, strict uh, abstinence-only messaging does not work, and that uh, reducing the risks and the harm reduction, the risk reduction approach is viable. Uh, the federal government is yet to catch up in, <laughs> with that. But so uh, that's uh, so, you know, in the beginning, um, I um, I had never been to a rave. I started Dance Safe because when I discovered 
that the market had become so contaminated with counterfeit drugs uh, and, and MDMA had been so precious and helpful for me as a teenager to heal from my childhood trauma, I uh, decided to, and when I learned about the Dutch government's program of pill testing, I decided to do it here. And uh, I like to say I was a punk when I was a teenager and still prefer guitar-based music, but I feel very privileged to have become a part of the rave and festival culture. It's very loving, very supportive. People like take care of each other and Dance Safe grew so quickly. Uh, I say less because of me than because of all the volunteers that just came out to try to help their peers. And, and I think this is uh, the spirit of MDMA. I do believe that the uh, peace, love, unity, and respect that uh, is present in the culture does have to do with the um, the insights and the feeling, the positive feelings and empathy, the effects of of MDMA and how it changes people almost almost always for the better. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think if I was going to be totally honest and and say to anybody you know to whether to try something or not I, I i don't think there's anything else that i've ever tried a, you know of, of a drug or, or an experience that i can say was so overwhelmingly uh wonderful and and has you know it's changed the way i listen to some music it's changed the way i i experience time with friends you know that sort of sense of um empathy and belonging and kind of you know, a, a genuinely on top of the world sort of feeling. I, gen I do agree with you that it can be kind of an overwhelmingly wonderful experience. Uh, you're not alone. <laughs> and uh, I, what I like to say is that MDMA is the drug that's going to end the drug war. Because I think with most drugs, you can take it, uh, feel good, uh, but still internalize the shame that the anti-drug culture puts on you for doing that right say you uh, take some cocaine and you're stimulated and you're you know confident and maybe you're a little randy and you go oh this is fun but in the back of your mind you're still saying yeah i know this is bad for me etc right right and i think you know even with uh, some psychedelics uh, which can also be profoundly therapeutic and positive people can still harbor that self-judgment but mdma's primary subjective effect if you will is to produce feelings of self-acceptance and self-love which translates then into empathy and love and care for others it tends to bring out the best in people and so one of the first things i've heard many people say when they've taken mdma for the first time is they start to feel it and then they say why is this illegal? There's nothing like, like I, you know, it's not like you become hypersexual or you're just awash in this uh, hedonistic pleasure experience. You feel like, oh my God, I need to apologize to my girlfriend for that bad thing I said to her. Or you say, oh my goodness, I want to do this with my mother so I can tell her she, she, you know, how much I love her. Like it, it, these kind of things that everybody instantly recognizes as beautiful positive things that are going to make the world a better place and so to the degree that the drug war is maintained by the internalization of this 
shame, this um, judgment that if you use drugs, you're being bad. Uh, it, MDMA is the drug to end the drug war because you just can't maintain that while you're on it. I think it might be interesting, um, if you don't mind, just explaining a bit about your um, route into taking it because um, most people, and I think I, I would be one of them in the UK, would imagine that MDMA was somehow invented in about 1988 somewhere in either Ibiza <laughs> or Manchester right. by a band like the Happy Mondays or DJ Paul Oakenfold and it suddenly appeared on dance floors and everyone went, oh, this is amazing, let's invent house music and, and the two will go together. <laughs> but I'm guessing uh, that obviously it was synthesized somewhere by a scientist who was probably looking to invent something else and happened upon it. And uh, it has a, in, certainly in the US, before EDM dance music kind of uh, wiped the floor with everything else, it had a background of being a, a therapeutic drug. That's right. Um, I think anyone can Google MDMA today and read the official history, uh, which might surprise a lot of people who see it as only a party drug. But the basics are, yes, for 10 years prior to its uh, appearance in Texas nightclubs, it was used by a network of therapists uh, for, for therapy. Everything from couples counseling to childhood trauma to uh, end-of-life anxiety for individuals and families struggling with a loved one with terminal illness. Um, anything really having to do with relational difficulties or um, uh, self-judgment and self-perception, which uh, childhood trauma in particular can devastate an individual's sense of self. MDMA is extremely useful uh, in that regard. And But when it was discovered in 1976 by a chemist by the name of Sasha Shulgin, who recognized its value and gave it to a psychiatrist friend of his, Leo Zeff, who we call the Johnny Appleseed of MDMA because he traveled the world for the rest of his life training therapists on how to use it. Right. When this discovery happened, it was uh, the height of the drug war. And so the network of therapists uh, decided to keep it underground because they knew that if people started using it in public locations, there would be a crackdown. And of course, that's what happened. This, um, people started using it in uh, Texas nightclubs, and the governor of Texas at the time decided to make it into his re-election campaign, get cracking down on this new demon drug, and uh, the uh, DEA uh, put it on schedule one the therapists filed a lawsuit they won their first lawsuit and then in the long run to make a very long story short uh, they lost on appeal and mdma has been uh, schedule one considered the, the highest most dangerous drug no medical value etc for the past 30 years but interestingly and that was in 1985 when the ban happened. Between 1976 and 1985, millions of doses were used um, in clinical settings or in home environments, and nobody died. And for the three years prior where it was being, millions of doses were being sold in Texas nightclubs, nobody died. It's very interesting to um, bring that point to light. Nobody died until many years after prohibition when 
the market started becoming adulterated, the perception of the drug changed to just your, you know, hey, get high, or, you know, this, you know, all of the uh, real knowledge went away as a result of prohibition. And now suddenly, I think the first death was in 1993. And then um, and I, uh, it ended up, I think it was a young woman named Leah Betts in the UK. And it ended up she died because she drank a gallon of water. She died from hyponatremia, not from MDMA. She, uh, in a panic, uh, was overheating and she just she drank too much water which can kill you and then I, 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 another young woman in, in 95 in Australia or I might have those dates reversed it might have been the Australia 93 and Leah Betts in the UK 95 uh, and then of course right around that time paramethoxyamphetamine started showing up and then people started dying in larger numbers and that's when the Dutch government began their pill testing program, and I did. In any case, I first came across MDMA in 1986, uh, and I first read about it in 1985 in Newsweek, a, at the time, I think it's still around, popular, but the internet has erased the influence of paper magazines. <laughs> but yeah. it, back then, Newsweek was extremely popular U.S. Uh, weekly or monthly magazine, like Time Magazine, that kind of thing, and they had a cover story in their April issue, and you can find this on the MAPS website, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, maps.org. They have an archive of the early MDMA in the media, and the very first article ever about MDMA was April 1985, and it was all about its use in therapy. And I was a teenager at the time um, who had left home. I was 15 years old, and I was fortunate enough to meet some adults who cared for me and suggested that I needed to, to find therapy. But, of course, I was living in a warehouse in downtown St. Pete, Florida. I didn't have any money, so how am I going to afford therapy? And then I read this article about a therapy drug, and I'm like, well, okay, I can't afford therapy, but I can certainly find this drug and you know $20 a, for a pill and take it uh, and talk about um, my father and and what happened to me as a child right and so I started doing that so it's very interesting I don't think there's many teenagers who um, whose first experience with MDMA is quite like mine right <laughs> it was never a party drug for me and, and although uh, uh, in my adult life, I, I have used it in um, festival settings, um, uh, but still generally, I just, I love to talk and have intimate personal conversations with people uh, when I'm on it. I don't typically just take it and dance, <laughs> so well, I'm a little unusual in that way. And I've heard a conversation that we, between you and uh, a British researcher, Dr. Ben Sesser, who um, is a, a child psychiatrist, I think, and he's yes. doing research where he uses uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, MDMA being one of them that he's trying to get all the the OKs um, from the various government organisations that he needs to in order to be able to use it as therapy. And people pr have probably read in the papers where MDMA is used to, as a way to sort of counsel people about things like post-traumatic stress disorder because if you do the counselling 
whilst you've uh, taken MDMA, then it enables you to talk without all the post-traumatic stress about the thing that gave you the post-traumatic stress. That's right. I like to call that the standard uh, mechanism of action. When you speak to most uh, researchers now, that's what they'll say, that MDMA reduces activity in the amygdala where we process and experience fear and anxiety. And so MDMA, by quieting the amygdala, really shutting it down, you don't feel any anxiety or fear, which then allows you to uh, talk about difficult trauma, and you can then reconsolidate, reintegrate it, see it differently, etc. But uh, through the course of making my documentary, I had the opportunity to interview over a dozen individuals who went through the therapy for PTSD, and then also putting that together with my own PTSD and MDMA therapy experience when I was a teenager, I've come to the conclusion there's another more important mechanism of action for the reason that MDMA is so healing. And I like to call it the sort of psychological mechanism of action. You don't need to talk about any particular brain areas or anything like that. What I, I believe is really going on is for whatever mysterious reason, MDMA produces feelings of self-acceptance. Uh, you can forgive yourself. And PTSD is largely, maybe entirely, I don't know, because I haven't interviewed, done a study with hundreds of people, but every single person that I interviewed for my documentary told me that they uh, were blaming themselves for whatever their trauma experience was. So I believe that you know, trauma affects us all, and we all have post-traumatic stress. Even if you get in a car accident, you can now have heightened stress if, when you're driving in a car. But that's not going to become debilitating. That's not going to take over your life, get progressively worse, the, the, the symptoms that we, we call post-traumatic stress disorder. When you add that D on, when it becomes a bona fide disorder, I believe almost invariably it's because you've interpreted your trauma in a way in which you blame yourself. So the veterans in my documentary, that one of them accidentally killed two little girls, two innocent girls in a firefight. Another one felt he didn't do enough to save his fellow soldiers, uh, classic um, survivor's syndrome. And then even I interviewed a childhood uh, sexual abuse rape survivor who for most of her life had blamed herself for her abuse. And you think, how can a, you know, your child, nobody would blame a child for being sexually abused, but a child does that because it's safer to believe there's something wrong with you than to believe the world you've been born into and the people who are entrusted with your care are out to hurt you. And so the MDMA has this magical ability to free an individual from their erroneous self-judgment of uh, that they were responsible for their, their traumatic experiences. And I think that's really the more important mechanism of action yeah. that's going on. And that's, I mean, that's amazing. Um, it does sort of stagger you then that it's not, it's not being used more or, or is it starting to be used more? Oh, well, so in the U.S., uh, we are right now uh, in the middle of uh, beginning phase three studies. Uh, 
the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, approves new drugs. And MAPS, the organization I mentioned earlier, has been working since MDMA was banned uh, to raise the money, develop the protocols, this, do the studies, and bring MDMA to market th as a prescription medicine. And the light is at the end of the tunnel. Um, they are now recruiting um, subjects for the third and final phase of FDA approval. And because of the tremendously positive results from the phase two trials, the FDA has granted NDMA breakthrough drug status, which means the FDA is now contributing their own resources into phase three to expedite the process. So um, MDMA, it's not even a question anymore. And I mean, unless phase three is a disaster, but nobody believes that's going to be the case, uh, MDMA is going to be legal as a prescription medicine in 2021. Which I guess will start then to change people's opinion of it and it'll start to be uh, seen as a, you know, a useful chemical, a chemical that then you can start to talk about uh, how to use it, you know, how to how what's an appropriate dose how do you how should you take it how shouldn't you take it and all those sort of things um, <laughs> i'm trying to start that conversation now even before it's legalized yeah, i went to meet an organization in the uk that i know you've probably heard of who are doing a, a similar thing to what it sounds like dance safe do so i went to see the loop who do, yeah the automation's organization yeah. that's right and so a drug testing organization and you find them at some uk festivals and in some nightclubs and you can take your drugs in and get them tested. And so when I bought some MDMA off the dark web and then took it along to get it tested, um, it was MDMA, what I bought. So there was no um, doubt that that I bought what I paid for, but uh, mm. it was really strong. So um, <clears throat> the, the dose, were, they said, in the pill that I bought was 270 milligrams, which uh, I think is probably three, at least twice, maybe three times what an, a normal average adult would require to uh, yes. get high on it so um so that you know that's the big risk um but and, and right. but, but what the guy who was does the harm reduction chat at the end of this you know you don't just take your pill in there and get it tested and then off you go that you have to sit down and have a conversation that might be 15 20 minutes long with a um, a harm reduction person uh to just make sure that you know what it is you've got and what you're taking and how to take it. And he said he was shocked by, you know, how often maybe a festival, some 16, 17, 18-year-olds will come in with, you know, bags of pills and powders on them and they have no idea really what any of them will do to them and how much of them to take and how to take them. So uh, I thought, given that you know lots of things, I wondered if it's uh, if we can try and myth bust a few things and just uh explore a few useful things so that if if you are um going to take it or if you know someone who is at least you can give them a bit of knowledge um yeah. so we talked a little bit about dangerous and the fact that it can be dangerous but um also if you take it properly it, it might not be one of the one of the things that always appears in news stories is that you know if you take an ecstasy tablet you're playing russian roulette with your life um yeah uh so do you want to just talk about that a bit? And, and you know, if you are going to go to a nightclub and take uh, an ecstasy tablet, what little tips would you suggest would be a safer way of doing it? 
Yeah, so the first thing we need to recognize in this is that prohibition has put us in a very difficult situation, primarily because it, with pressed tablets, you never know how much is in it unless you can go to the loop or any or another quantitative testing facility and find out. And knowing the dose that you're taking is really, really important. Uh, I said earlier, most fatalities are heat stroke, not overdoses, but it's still the case that you are more likely to suffer heat stroke if you take 270 milligrams than if you take 100 milligrams, a normal size dose, right? So how do you, you know, be careful in an environment where there just isn't widespread uh, knowledge? You know, we, we don't have uh, regulations over the production of illegal drugs like we do over legal ones. And so um, people like to say, you know, start with half or a quarter first when you take MDMA. The problem with that is that, uh, well, to be frank, underdosing on MDMA sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and because there is a... Uh, I like to say there's, uh, and this really is the most important fact to know about MDMA. Unlike most drugs, there is a strict threshold and ceiling to the dose to have a good time. You need to get, for most people, I would say like about 93% of the population who are normal metabolizers of the CYP2D6 liver enzyme, the primary enzyme that MDMA and many other drugs are processed by. And we, genetically, we come in three different types, normal metabolizers of this enzyme, about 93% of us. Then we have slow metabolizers and ultra fast. But if we are normal metabolizers, the, you need to at least take 70 milligrams uh, and and stay below 125 or 150 um, if you are a new user. Um, if you take less than 70, you're not going to uh, feel the proper effects of MDMA because there's not enough serotonin release to quiet the amygdala down. There's just enough to stimulate it. And in the uh, PTSD studies, uh, they found that if they gave 50 milligrams to veterans uh, or rape survivors, uh, it actually made their PTSD worse because it kind of causes a little anxiety, just some stimulation. So, so you need to get past this threshold. That feeling of anxiety, there's a weird thing with these drugs, which is um, unlike if you're taking a legal drug like alcohol, if you're having a pint of beer, sort of by the time you finish that first pint, you can start to feel the effects of that first pint and you know what to expect with the second pint and you can pace yourself. Whereas if you pop one ecstasy tablet or half an ecstasy tablet and and then wait you might have to wait 20 minutes you might have to wait 45 minutes you might have to wait an hour before it starts to have an effect and if you don't know what that effect is going to be because it's the first time that can be a stressful and panicky period when yeah. if, if the low dose is also increasing your anxiety a bit more that is that it's not pleasant it's not fun you're like oh that's, and so then you might take that, more and so on yeah that's right i think there's also a pharmacological effect with mdma that on the come up experience there is some anxiety 
until you get enough of it uh, into your brain, enough serotonin released. So everyone experiences, even I do, I've taken MDMA hundreds of times and I still feel a little anxiety during that come up experience. The other th most important thing to know is the ceiling effect with MDMA. Uh, most drugs like alcohol, you take a little, you feel a small effect, you take more, the effect gets stronger. You wait an hour, it wears off, you take more, you, the effect comes back. That's the same with most drugs that people are familiar with, cannabis, cocaine, stimulants of other sorts, uh, you know, even benzodiazepines, you know, they're, they're, you can really increase the effect continually for a very long period of time. You can get higher and higher and higher. Uh, by taking more and feel a stronger effect. Well, but that it does not work with MDMA. Be, and, the, and there's a very important uh, pharmacological explanation for this, very simple explanation, and that is that MDMA simply releases the serotonin that's stored in your brain already. And we don't produce and re replenish serotonin very quickly. It takes a week or two, depending on diet and genetics, to restore your full level of serotonin in storage in your brain. That's why you don't see people getting addicted to MDMA in the same way as other drugs, because you can't take it every day. It just won't work, because you don't have the serotonin to be released. And it doesn't do anything else other than release that serotonin, and except contribute to da dangerous fatalities and adverse medical reactions if you were to take you know a gram for example some really huge amounts so but people don't know this they'll take mdma they'll feel really good they'll come down and then they'll take more thinking they're going to get back to that good feeling again most people have to learn it the hard way uh but we should really keep trying to educate young people, new users, uh, don't do that. The protocols developed in the 70s uh, during, by the therapeutic community, which carries over to recreational users too, uh, is that you can redose one time on MDMA. And the best time to do that is about the two to three hour mark before you start coming down. And you should take one-third to one-half of your original dose. So if you took 100 milligrams, uh, say at 9 p.m., then uh, between 11 and midnight, you could take another 30 to 50 milligrams, and that will extend the experience for another hour or two than it normally would start ending after four or five hours. You're going to get six or seven hours instead now by doing that one redose. And that, uh, the theory behind this is by that time, you've now released most of your serotonin and taking more after that isn't going to make you feel good again. Mm. And it will increase all of the negative side effects, uh, the jaw clenching, the dysphoria that some people feel on the come down or the next day. And I like to say that's not most people. Um, but it's a significant minority of people who feel uh, what I call the MDMA hangover, uh, different from an alcohol hangover. It's kind of more like lethargy, depression, and it can last a day, 
some people may be more. I think it's correlated with a, whether a person is vulnerable uh, to depression to begin with. And maybe 30% of the users will report this. Most people feel great the next day. They call it the afterglow and there's no problems. But once you, when you start taking higher doses, hot, larger doses than you have stored serotonin to be released, you start um, flirting with more of these uh, potential negative side effects. And it's counterintuitive because most drugs don't work like MDMA. Most drugs mimic a brain neurotransmitter, right? Like, or they're uh, a, 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 a a reuptake inhibitor, they don't deplete it. So, so for example, uh, opiates like uh, heroin, morphine, Oxycontin, they mimic your body's natural endorphins and that's so you can just keep taking it and get a higher effect, right? Um, or cocaine is a dopamine uh, reuptake inhibitor and so it will cause the dopamine to stick around in, the, in your synapses longer but it does not depleting your dopamine. Um, but MDMA is, does not, it's not like you're taking serotonin. It's not binding to serotonin receptors. It's just releasing the stored serotonin you have. And so there's a ceiling effect and you just can't take too high a dose. Again, most people between 70 and 125 milligrams, um, uh, if you, but what complicates this a lot is that about 6% of the population are what we call slow metabolizers of the liver enzyme that processes MDMA. Those people can feel a super strong effect on 50 or even 40 milligrams. Okay. And so, and then you have uh, fast or ultra fast metabolizers, the last genetic type. And it's a continuum, right? Uh, but there are people who are ultra-fast metabolizers, and they can't feel MDMA at all unless they take 250 milligrams. They're less than 1% of the population, but they're out there. Yeah. And so when you're talking with your friends about a proper dose, it's important that everyone realizes that everyone's dose is different. And so what you really need to do is figure out what your dose is first and then stick with that. But to do that, you have to have the ability to know what, how much is in your pill. And that's why the work of The Loop and Fiona is so important. That's why we're hoping to uh, obtain uh, quantitative testing technology here in the U.S. DanceSafe is hoping to be able to do that, too, because it's great to say you just have pure MDMA. But if you can't tell someone how much, the, the, all of these unnecessary risks are still present. Yeah. You mentioned earlier Leah Betts, who's obviously her name for my generation. I'm 42 years old. She, she was the um, the big horror story in our youth that suddenly highlighted the dangers of ecstasy to everyone in the UK. Um, and that was uh, that condition you said where she drank too much water. Um, so uh, w how much should we drink if we're going clubbing and taking ecstasy? You know, general rule of thumb is a pint an hour. Uh, you don't really need much more than that, even if you're dancing aerobically. Um, the other, you know, the irony is, you know, you want to, uh, you don't want to become dehydrated because that can increase uh, risk of heat stroke. But MDMA actually causes water retention. 
And so in Leah Betz's case, it very well could be a, a combination of the fact that she drank too much water, plus she was on a drug that causes water retention. And so not, you know, the harm reduction advice changed right around that time when studies revealed that MDMA has this uh, water retention effect that, okay, instead of telling everyone, drink water, drink water, make sure you drink water if you take ecstasy, it became, okay, well, drink water, but don't drink too much water. <laughs> and a pint an hour is probably all you need. And also, I suppose common sense and how you feel i mean most people get tired after a while even if you're taking ecstasy there comes a point at four or five in the morning where you're tired and so going and sitting <laughs> down and cooling down uh yeah. you still feel that kind of tingly feeling and and that's probably when you want to go and sit in the chill out zone and hug somebody and tell them how much you love them but uh it's uh you know that kind of common sense feeling and looking out for your mates in a sort of common sense way is it just helps anyway, doesn't it? Yes, right, exactly. And uh, the point is that prohibition prevents that in multiple ways. Prohibition causes people, it, it, it stops the public conversation. It causes people to uh, hide their drug use. It causes a lot of myths and misinformation to proliferate because there are no experts right like so i'm an expert in mdma right but who am i i'm you know i have a degree in philosophy and a master's degree in world religion and i started a harm reduction organization right but what we, we really need doctors to be able to speak the truth to their patients and they're because they are the perceived experts you go to your doctor or a nurse or police officers, right? People who have positions uh, that command more respect than someone with a master's degree in religion. <laughs> they yeah. need to be able to tell their patients and people the things that I'm saying without fear, but because of prohibition, they can't do that. So that's what I mean when I say there are no experts. Teachers in a classroom could not get away with speaking the truth about drugs, at least not here in the United States. They, there would be parents who would consider them having, you know, corrupted their children. It would just be a scandal, right? So this is all a, a problem of prohibition and why it's so important that we end it. And it's why uh, the, with Dance Safe and in my own harm reduction activism, I always combine harm reduction with policy reform. We need to reform the laws in order to uh, reduce the hysteria. And really what we need is decriminalization. I interviewed um, a, a representative of Cosmicare, oh, I'm forgetting her name now, uh, but the harm reduction uh, organization like uh, Dan Safe in the Loop that works in Portugal. And she was telling me, you know, why I asked, I, always, I knew the statistics that uh, 15 or years ago, whenever it was, Portugal decriminalized all drugs. Uh, for your audience, that means there it's not it's not it's not illegal anymore to possess drugs for personal consumption, but it remains illegal to manufacture or sell drugs. So decriminalization is different from legalization or legal regulation of the production and sale. But just decriminalizing drugs in Portugal reduced the overdose rate or the 
drug fatality rate by over 50% within a year. And why? And that's what I asked her why. And she said, because as soon as drugs became decriminalized, all of the public space opened up for honest conversation as well as services services and all sorts of services right we talk about pill testing we can't do that in the open in most locations here in the united states because it's illegal if drugs were decriminalized there would be no uh, hurdle to doing that we could have public tents with ftr machines spectroscopy machines big signs come here and get your drugs tested there would be no fear of arrest so and then and also addiction services treatment programs you know support groups doctors and nurses able to talk openly as soon as you decriminalize the public space opens up and lives are saved instantly so that's really what i'm hoping happens next in the US and I think it, activists in the UK should be working towards that. I kind of disagree with the approach that uh, we need to go one drug at a time. For example, a lot of people have been sharing and are excited about a proposition on the ballot now coming up in the next election in, in Oregon, uh, the state above California, to um, uh, decriminalize uh, magic mushrooms. And psilocybin. I'm like, okay, well, that's great, but we're not, you know, we're not going to really uh, change the culture and reduce the harm if we just try these piecemeal approach, one drug at a time. We need to decriminalize all drugs, and truthfully, we need to decriminalize the drugs that are more dangerous uh, first, because the, the, which more people are dying from. Like the fentanyl crisis in the U.S. is incredible, and if people could test their drugs and get the quantitative results uh we you know we would save tens of thousands of lives i don't know if the u.s young people are different to uk young people in their attitudes but my hunch is that if we were to decriminalize party drugs that people who at the moment don't take them because the fact that they're illegal makes them a bit difficult to get hold of and uh and then they're a bit worried about them uh you know, it's a barrier to them taking it. My feeling is, if we legalized it, you know, young Britain would just go nuts, and they'd all they'd all go out that weekend and and just take it because there was big flashing lights saying it's been it's been what, endorsed, it's been okayed. Well, I got two things to say about that. The first one is, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be wonderful if more young people took MDMA and had the self love and the bonding experiences? Maybe it would reduce the use of alcohol. But number two, that is not was not the case in uh, Portugal when they decriminalized drugs. They actually saw a drop in the use of most drugs. They saw an increase in cannabis use. Uh, but when you remove the forbidden fruit aspect of prohibition, the temptation, uh, and it becomes just, you know, well, yeah, drugs are out, you can do them, they'll make you feel this way, that way, or whatever, um, you actually don't increase uh, – youth use of those drugs and what we do know is that uh, moderate use appropriate use and you know proper use in education and harm reduction becomes the norm so what I like to say is yeah uh, maybe we'll see an increase in the number of people who are using drugs but I say that's a good thing especially when it comes to the psychedelics I want more people 
to be using psychedelics because I think the benefits far outweigh the risks. But number two, it's not drug use itself that's the evil. It's the harm that's the evil. The harm is what we're trying to get rid of, fatalities and medical emergencies and things like that. So if we increase the number of, let's say, the number of British youth that use MDMA doubles, but the number of fatalities drops in half, and the amount that the British youth take in a given session goes down, and the number of times a year they take it goes down, but more people are taking it. That's a net positive all the way around. I also like to point out that that prohibition and the scare tactics around drugs, they don't work on the people who are most at risk. Uh, and they're unnecessary for the people who are least at risk because the people who are going to not use a drug because it's illegal or because they heard that somebody died or 60 people die a year. Those are uh, what we call risk-averse individuals. And risk-averse individuals are the types of, of people, I, I was one of them, I am one of them, to some degree, we're all on a spectrum, you know. Um, <laughs> I research everything I could about the drug first, you know, I've never, uh, since at least the, uh, 1999, I've never swallowed an ecstasy ta- tablet that I didn't know the, not only purity of, but the dose of. Right. But, uh, so you're going to have responsible people, and uh, who, who, you know, they may never take, uh, ecstasy now because it's illegal because they can't have it tested it could be dangerous and sure if if it was decriminalized or if there were pill testing and they realized well this might be say those people are were never at risk of you know the uh self-destructive or or um uh, the behavior the the careless behaviors that um we see amongst the group of novelty seekers and rebels and young people who are just going to do whatever the authorities tell them not to those are the people who are at r- most at risk and those are the people for whom the prohibition and scare tactics don't work they don't care whether it's illegal or not they're going to do it anyway right so i think it's there's really there's really no risk in decriminalization uh, and uh, I even think what we need is legal regulation, right? We actually need to provide uh, safe avenues for the manufacturer and purchase of different drugs. Then we can more easily keep them away from minors, for example. Um, uh, even though I think that, you know, it's probably for, for childhood trauma, I think the earlier uh, that M- MDMA therapy happens, uh, the better. And so even teenagers, I think, I feel very privileged to have discovered and uh, learned about MDMA when I was 15. And uh, nine months later, when I turned 16, I first found it. And I, I, I feel very lucky to have been able to take MDMA as a teenager, be- precisely because my brain still was forming at that time and had a lot of neuroplasticity where I was able to, um, you know, really change my self-hatred, anger at my father in the world and all those maladaptive beliefs that I had. I I still, we all have plasticity and we can all change, but I think I wouldn't be who I was today without those experiences. And take note, I didn't take MDMA and go to a professional therapist in 1986. I took it with my friend 
my best friend at first and talked about my trauma. And, and then over that year, you know, turned on a few other friends and had some small groups where we did it together, always talking intimately about issues in our life. So a lot of people, even in recreational contexts, will take MDMA and have these therapeutic conversations and uh, learn to love and forgive themselves and others. And so, you know, despite my statement that legal regulation would help us prevent uh, drugs in general getting in the hands of young people, because at least like alcohol, they would have to get an adult to buy it for them, whereas any 13-year-old can find an illegal drug very easily. So despite that quali political qualification there, you know, I still uh, personally think that MDMA is very helpful for teenagers, can be. Yeah. Um, and, and one thing I think I've heard you say before, which I think is just interesting, um, uh, is about um, knowing what a drug is going to do and knowing why you want to take it before you do um lots, <laughs> lots of young people yeah. uh, get sort of schooled by just being around uh, adults who use alcohol so uh, hopefully they get a reasonably good example of how to use alcohol and they might see that a glass of wine is enjoyable with a meal or a couple of beers on a friday night is a way to celebrate the end of a week and and they hopefully they don't see uh, a negative side of it but they are learning by observing uh, what their parents or the adults around them uh, get out of the drug alcohol and what it's for uh, and so then when they experiment with it and, and start to use it as an adult they kind of know what to expect and know how to how to do it whereas yeah. um, with with ecstasy the sensation could be quite unpleasant if you have no idea what you're taking it for um, so hearing someone like you talk about how it helped you through a childhood trauma or hearing just any adult sort of say Oh, it was great when I was younger because that holiday cemented those friendships with those people listening to that music in a way that I never thought possible and wouldn't have been possible if we'd just all got drunk in the sun. You know, if you if you were as a child were hearing adults talking quite honestly about those experiences, it, it would I guess help you know whether you wanted to take it and know what you would, what to expect when you took it. Yeah, that's right, and. Uh... You know, I, I'm, unfortunately, in pro, uh, under prohibition, it's very hard to model appropriate uh, ecstasy consumption uh, for your children, right? Most parents who have young children will still hide their use of all illegal drugs, even if they are positive use of psychedelics infrequently. Um, and that's unfortunate because I think that children really need, just for the reasons you said, they should really see that and understand that and, and not look at these substances, forbidden fruit, rebellious things, you know, I, I, things that, you know, in the States, people, you, young people will say, let's get fucked up, right? Mm -hmm. That's the language they use when talking about uh, using any drug, right? And I remember having a conversation with my stepdaughter, right? Oh, that's interesting. What does that mean? Like, do you want to, you know, smoke some pot to, you know, feel good? Are you trying to feel good? Are you trying to get fucked up? Why would you want to get fucked up? Right. And like, so the language that we use around drugs, I, I think is a result of prohibition and anti-drug culture, right? It's like, they're going <laughs> to, who would, <laughs> would anyone say, I'm going to go take this, uh, you know, barbell and beat myself with it to fuck myself up, right? <laughs> I'm going to, I want to get fucked up. I want to like, be you know like that like nobody would say that but that's uh 
that's the language around drugs and we need to change that yeah uh is there anything else that you think people should know about um mgma that we haven't yet said uh huh i could talk hours about MGMA. <laughs> i think we got the most important things out there i i think again i would just try to encourage people uh to let go of their shame uh and realize that uh you're okay even if you want to use a drug, drugs can be, uh, especially psychedelics and MDMA in particular, extraordinarily positive experiences in your life. And that includes simply just having fun. Having fun and bonding with your friends is a positive, uh, therapeutic thing to have happen. And um, uh, so uh, don't, uh, don't feel guilty. Uh, that seems like a good point to end it. Thank you ever so much, Emmanuel. It's been great to talk to you. Um, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Uh, I feel very clued up. <laughs> All right. It's been great. We're all hooked up. Nice. Recording. So tell me again what you were just about to say. I like the episode a lot. I wasn't going to say much more than that. I think it was one of her episodes so far. I think it was like, quite interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that was all I was going to say then, because I was going to wait for this to start and like, for you to ask questions. But Okay, well, that's a good I've start. I've had it really interesting. Yeah, I think uh, there are some things I've learned in radio. Uh, one is that the sound of a ringing telephone is always exciting when you hear it on the radio. You're like, oh, what's going to happen next? Why is the phone ringing? Who's going to answer? And the other thing is that American accents always sound good. And I think listening to Emmanuel, there's something just nice about hearing an American guy saying things. It just, yeah. just sounds, makes everything sound slightly cooler than, than it might be if it was said in my northern flat English tones. <laughs> uh, what interested you about what he was saying? Um... You mean interested me the most in terms of things? Yeah, what what? Aspect? Well, I think it was just a new opinion on that I hadn't heard as much. Yeah. Because all the other episodes are slightly more like, it's dangerous and legalising is the best way to deal with that, whereas this is legalising is the best way to get it into therapy and to be able to use it more. Yeah, he's a real um, evangelist for yeah, the drug um, itself, isn't he? It's sort of interesting to think that people will say, oh, take drugs to get high, and people wouldn't really question what that means. But all the drugs that we ever talk about have particular characteristics to them, which are unique to what they are as chemicals. But you don't get the same effect if you have cocaine as if you have alcohol, or if you have yeah. cannabis as if you have MDMA. And one of the cliches about um, MDMA is that it makes you want to hug people and uh, there's a brilliant song by The Streets which I'll play to you at some point called Weak Become Heroes. Uh, it's a good song and there's a line in it about um, if they could settle wars with this, imagine the world's leaders on pills. They could settle wars with this, if only they will. Imagine the world's leaders on pills and imagine the morning after, wars causing disaster. And it is one of those cliched things that people who are high on MDMA would go, oh, why don't, why don't more people take this? And like, there'd be no wars if people could just see, see how good people are and could just feel um, much more in tune with each other. But that is a, clearly a really 
unique chemical characteristic of what MDMA does yeah. in your body. It makes you love other people and it makes you, as he said, love yourself so you can get... Yeah. Some of you are saying, oh yeah, you're in this country you're thinking, oh, if we legalised it, everyone will just go out and do it, you know? That was my worry about it, yeah. Yeah, but then he said maybe that was a good thing. Or unless you'd be like, oh yeah, that, that could be a good thing, that people go out just doing it because it's a good drug. Yeah, that yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and I find that really hard to. Um, I find my, I find that really uncomfortable to to say something like that or to suggest something like that because I've met people like Janine Milburn earlier in the series, whose daughter died from taking it. Yeah. Just last year, and so you know, how can you possibly say it would be good if more people take it when it's killing people? But um, I guess what he's saying is if. If we legalised it and people took the right dose and knew how to take it. And also, people take it in this country in hot nightclubs or at festivals when they haven't got yeah. uh, any protection around them. Whereas if, like he did, you take it chilling out on a sofa and just have conversations with people without any banging music in the background, yeah. and things, it's, it's a really different thing. And if you watch the, you know, on the podcast, you hear a bit of that um, beginning of his movie, you know, the um, MDMA movie where the yeah. soldier's talking. And what you see, if you watch the trailer on YouTube, is um, that the, the guy, when he's describing what, what happened when they gave him MDMA as part of the therapy, is he's lying on a hospital bed or lying in a kind of room that looks like a smart hospital room. And... Um, yeah. You know, so he's comfortable, he wears an eye mask thing like you would wear if you were sleeping. So he's kind of chilled out. He hasn't got all that hyper-stimulation of TV noise or games on or music on. Yeah. And I think when I've listened to other scientists talk about using MDMA for therapy, and they, they are, there's a guy in Bristol, Dr. Ben Sessa, who is trying to do more of it in this country. He does the therapy where there's just gentle music in the background and yeah and I think the therapy works because you you do about four or five sessions of just talking trying to talk through whatever the trauma is and then you have a couple of sessions where they give you the drug first before you talk and then you have some more sessions afterwards where you talk a bit more Uh, yeah and I think the MDMA just unlocks that bit of your brain that allows you to forgive yourself really and not be yeah. so traumatised by it all. Yeah, so interesting one. He thinks it is the key drug to ending the war. On yeah, that. I said that because, like, um, why was it again? Because I think he just thinks it will have, it would have such a profound effect on, on people who take it. It would be the one that has the biggest positive effect on society. Yeah. Which is not an unreasonable suggestion when you look at some of the other scientists who've looked at how risky drugs are it it in itself isn't very risky yeah the famous guy in this country professor david nutt was sacked by the government years ago like 2004 5 because he produced a report saying it's less harmful than horse riding oh and the government didn't like that message and so they sacked him as their (laughs) drugs advisor but he stands by that you know more accidents happen every year from people riding horses 
It's just they're not public. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, they just don't make front page news of the papers. And, and, and riding and, a horse is legal. And it's legal, yeah. But what he says is, you know, riding horses is dangerous, but we don't make it illegal. We make sure that people wear helmets and have lessons before they go fast and things like that. And yeah. I suppose... What you don't have a license to ride a horse, right? Like some kind of like. Yeah, you need to have had lessons, don't you, and instructions and stuff. And um, and I guess what Emmanuel is saying, and what a lot of people would say, is if ecstasy was available on a prescription or was available in a pharmacy way, you knew what the what the dose should be, and and you could take it more safely. Then actually, a lot of those accidents that currently happen wouldn't happen anyway. Yeah. It's the second most illegal. Second most used illegal drug in the UK, so it's after, after cannabis. cannabis yeah. yeah, it's it's the one that since it arrived here in nightclubs in the late eighties, it's the drug that changed the way Britain views drugs. Really, suddenly drugs was a, is a, a thing that a young people might do, whereas it used to not really be a thing at all. What do you mean, like as a more acceptable or more? More mainstream, I think. Mainstream, yeah. So we used to just be a, con- a country of people that went to the pub. And you might go to a nightclub after the pub, but that was just to drink a bit more. Yeah, drink more. <laughs> and there wasn't really any difference to that. And drugs in the 60s and 70s was a hippie. Yeah. Of, it was a real kind of little sub- subculture thing. It was a bit of pot smoking and a bit of maybe taking acid, LSD, things to meet God and, you know, find, <laughs> discover the, situ- the the secrets of the universe and find more deep messages in the music you were listening to and, and so on. So that was one yeah. bit. But then when Ecstasy came in, it suddenly, a whole youth movement grew out of going out for a different kind of night out. And it was cheap and kind of a lot of fun. Like, it made people nicer to each other. It didn't, it didn't make, yeah. it didn't cause fights or... Uh, the, the, the danger, obviously, is that then people can have a bad reaction to it and some deaths have happened and that is the only message that you get in the papers now is... Yeah, you can die, don't yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, um, whereas the, um, there's a, just a sort of narrative in the papers of, of scare tactics which are a bit over the top for the risk of what it is. Loads more people, I'm sure, go into hospital every weekend having drunk too much to have their stomachs pumped and yeah. what have you. Oh, definitely, uh, yeah. Um, the scary thing, I think, though, at the moment is that um, younger and younger people are are taking it and that it does seem to... The, the drug rate, the drug death rate is going up in this country. Oh, yeah even for ecstasy so it's not many people but they're individual tragedies obviously and and it's going up and i think that is down to the strength and people not yeah. not knowing what they're getting and I think it's more down to the strength the more down to people not knowing well it's it's a mixture it's just if someone's given you a pill then you tend to put the whole thing in your mouth and if that pill yeah, is four it's... times the strength it needs to be because like in this country, like pills, so you get ibuprofen. Unless you're a small child, you hit the entire pill. Because that's just the way it works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, we're not in the habit of dividing up our tablets, are we? we... And because obviously, then dividing tablets is associated with childhood. People maybe don't want to do it. 
Yeah, I think so. And also people take them in, in a nightclub or in a in a festival. So if someone gives you something, you haven't got a table to chop it carefully yeah, on. Yeah. You, you, you know, it's easier just to put the whole thing in your mouth. And if that thing is way too strong for how big your body is and how much you can handle, then um, and that's the problem. So I think it is that. And also, I think a lot of people just don't know don't know what to expect. Don't. Yeah. Next week, I'm going to do the interview, I'll play the interview with Norman Lamb, who's an MP and wants to legalise drugs. One of the few MPs who is vocal about wanting to do that. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that'll be interesting. And uh-huh. it's not quite as long as this episode, so oh, yeah. I think you might find it easier. Um, but um, thanks for listening. And yeah, pleasure. We'll do that next week. Lovely.